Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Tensions in Tehran. Iranians protest the shooting down of Ukrainian Airlines flight PS752. Boeing's battles. A new CEO takes charge of the aerospace giant. And a Sandringham showdown. A Royal Summit to discuss the potential Sussex split. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Once again, to first move this Monday following what was a balmy weekend of weather here in New York. Hot weather, hot stocks this morning too on Wall Street. Take a look. The major averages set to open near records once again. We did pull back a touch from all-time highs on Friday after that slightly softer than expected jobs report, though the Dow did top 29,000 for the first time ever too. We're just below that, as you can see. The first full week of trading in 2020 saw the Nasdaq up almost 2%, the fifth straight week of gains for tech stocks too. Tech leadership is the phrase. What about over in Asia though as well? The Japanese markets were closed in Monday's session, but stocks in China, Hong Kong and South Korea all advanced. As you can see, Asian stocks in fact hitting 19 month highs today too. Now, after a week dominated by US-Iranian tensions, the hope now it seems is that we can bring it back to some of the fundamentals here. What else but fourth quarter earnings season kicking off in the United States at least this week. The big banks will report this week critical, I think, again this season for all companies around the world, forward guidance, especially given the developments on trade that we've seen. We've got the US and China set to sign their phase one trade deal this Wednesday, at which point we might actually hear what that deal contains, of course. Uh, One does never cease. Keep an eye, too, on inflation numbers this week. Crucial for keeping central banks in easing mode, too. Lots to come this week, lots to talk about in the show. But for now, let's get to the drivers and the latest from Iran. Protests spreading in Iran after the government admitted to shooting down a Ukrainian passenger jet killing all 176 people on board. Authorities say it was a mistake and they've apologized. Nick Robertson is live in Abu Dhabi with the latest for us. Nick, they've apologized, but according to these Iranian protesters, that apology is simply not enough here and they want justice for those that lost their lives. Yeah, the uh, commander-in-chief of Iran's uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps said that he's never been so sorry in his life for for anything, that he said he wished he'd died on the plane. But his contrition of that and that contrition that's been offered up by leaders in Iran doesn't translate 
to the, to the streets. The protesters there are angry because they think their leadership doesn't care about them. And beyond that, those protests are spreading. They're becoming more intense. They're becoming violent. People have been shot uh, and, kill, and, and injured by live bullets being fired. So, you know, when you look at the contrition coming from the leaders, where is it on the streets towards those protesters? It doesn't seem to be there. Now, Iran's police are saying that they know they haven't shot live rounds at protesters. They've only fired tear gas. But in the videos we've seen, you can hear the live rounds being fired. You can see people apparently injured by bullets. One woman says she's shot in the foot and somebody else is, is, shot in the, is shot in the leg. And you can hear people shouting that, that they're shooting, get down, get down, bring bandages. It is somewhat chaotic and, uh, uh, and it, is, it appears to be getting worse. The protests that we saw prior to the escalation, of course, with tensions with the United States too. We'll continue to watch that. Nick, fantastic to have you with us. Nick Robertson there reporting. All right, let's move on to our next driver. The Chinese auto market slump continues with sales falling more than 8% in 2019. The December numbers marking 18 straight months of decline. Sharice Pham joins us on this story. Sharice, great to have you with us. It's an acceleration, in fact, on the deterioration that we saw in 2018 too, and it's pretty broad-based, and it's also impacting global automakers all around the world too. Just give us some of the details, and then we'll discuss what's going on. Absolutely. Acceleration. I see what you did there, Julia. I was going to go with the high speed growth of Chinese car sales. They are clearly they have clearly come to an end. This is marking the second year of shrinking car sales in China. And let's not forget, just four or five years ago, we were seeing double digit growth in China. Of course, that has all come unraveled in the last two years. This uh, is a market that's been hit by a couple different factors. You've got the uh, slowing Chinese economy, of course. You've got the U.S.-China trade war impacting things. And you also had a broad-based rollout by Beijing in the summer of new emission standards, which really sent the market into a bit of a confusion. So you saw that depressed sales as well. And like you said, this is really particularly hitting global car makers really hard. Ford came out today, gave out their 2019 sales numbers, and they were not good. They were down more than 26% year-on-year. GM, also their rival, last week saying they were down uh, 15%. So you're seeing it across the market. Uh, local domestic car makers also hurt by this. Japanese car makers fared a little bit better. They saw a little bit of a year-on-year increase in sales. But this pain isn't going to end anytime soon. Industry analysts, car makers, and uh, the, uh, the official uh, body that tracks this data in China as well, all across the board saying that 2020 will mark a third straight year of contraction, Julia. I mean, you mentioned some great points there. I think one of the most confusing was the fact that the country said they want new energy vehicles to make up, what, around a fifth of the country's auto sales by 2025, and yet they were cutting subsidies to take out some of the extra capacity and overcrowding in the electric car field. So I do think for many people looking at this, they're a bit puzzled about what the what the plan is here from, from the government. But Cherise, something else that, that struck me, and I know you've got the details on this too, the second-hand car market in China, something that's developed elsewhere in the world, but that's showing signs of real strength in China, and surely this is having an impact to new car sales too. Yeah, I think it's always interesting and important to remember when we're thinking about the China car market, this is a very new market. I lived right. in China from 2004 to 2009, and in that time, living in Beijing, there were still a lot of people that biked 
to and from work. That was their regular mode of transportation. So we're seeing a lot of growth in the first tier cities, but you're going to be seeing it rolling out in the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth tier cities. And that's also why I think you're you're starting to see a little bit more of an increase in demand for used car markets. So while we're seeing this plummet in sales for new car sales, on the other hand of the conversation, you've got a rise in uh, demand for used cars. I think McKinsey came out with a report seeing that the uh, annual growth for used car sales coming in at 15 percent around there for 2019. So really positive numbers. And it's a market that's growing and car makers can no longer ignore it. So if you want to own your brand and your image in China, you're also going to have to be able to control those used car sale markets, Julia. Yeah, such a great point. Sharice Pham, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver. Boeing has a new CEO. Dave Kowloon takes over one of corporate America's toughest jobs, I have to say, amid damaging fresh revelations concerning the 737 MAX. Claire Sebastian joins us on this story. Claire, I have to say, I mean, we'll talk about the new CEO and what he can do here, but that email leak on Friday, the toxic rift that became apparent between the workforce and management, the, the, the deferring to the 737 MAX designers as clowns, company supervisors as monkeys. How do you fix that kind of toxic culture? Well, I think the key for David Calhoun, Julia, and this is something that came out in the statement from Boeing when they first announced the leadership change, they said uh, under the new leadership, Boeing will operate with a renewed commitment to full transparency. Some even point to the very fact that this uh, this 100-plus page set of documents, uh, internal messages and emails were released to the public by Boeing to, to this commitment to transparency, that this has the fingerprints of the new CEO who takes over uh, today, that they have to get out ahead of potential leaks. They have to try and win back the trust of the flying public. And this is part of the challenge facing David Calhoun, Julia. It's not just about fixing the max, although that is, of course, his biggest job. He needs to fix relationships with the uh, the regulators, the Federal Aviation uh, Com- uh, Commission, and he needs to fix relationships with airlines who have been crippled by this stoppage, having to uh, change up planes and routes and have pilots furloughed. Uh, he needs to do all of that amid mounting costs to Boeing itself. We get new earnings out uh, at the end of this month, which could show costs spiraling for the company. So his is an enormous task. But I was talking to a friend of his who says, look, he's direct in his communication. He is someone who likes to know the nuts and bolts of how things work. And he uh, is taking this on, uh, this friend said, as a, as a public service. So he really believes in the systemic importance uh, of Boeing as a company. And that's why he's willing to do this. I mean, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, saying that this could lop off half a percentage point of growth from the United States gives you a sense of just how big a business this is and how big an exporter it is. What do we think as far as cutting employees? I mean, they employ over 130,000 people. They've managed to hang on to everybody, but this is having an impact on suppliers. It's clearly having an impact given the production halt that we've seen and on the financials of the company with the kind of cash burn that you've mentioned too. What do we think here? Well, I think it all depends, Julia, how long that that suspension of production of the 737 MAX goes on. That was announced, as you remember, uh, in December. Boeing at the time said it wasn't going to lay off any staff as a result. They have people reassigned to to various things. Uh, And obviously they want to be able to ramp up again once they do get reapproval for the MAX. But I think you you saw last week with the announcement from Spirit Aerosystems, who's the biggest supplier uh, to Boeing, relies on the MAX for more than half of its revenue. They are laying off 
2,800 employees. They said in their announcement that they are, are not only uncertain about when that production will start up again, but they believe when it does, it will be at lower levels. So this is critical. The, the stoppage in production is really why this matters so much to, to Boeing's supply chain and, and then by extension to the U.S. economy. So that, again, a critical challenge for David Calhoun to, to try to get this this the, this plane reapproved quickly, but also uh, in, a, in a way that, that, that reassures the flying public that it's safe. Yeah, trust is everything. And I have to say, just on a personal level, after reading about those emails leaks on Friday again, it gives you chills. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. And you'll be back later on in the show to uh, give us a look at what the new CEO simply got to do to get confidence back in Boeing as a business and beyond. Thank you for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Authorities in the Philippines are urging nearly half a million people to leave after a volcano spewed ash nine miles into the air. The eruption produced some incredible volcanic lightning as well. Seismologists believe another explosion eruption could be imminent. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi expected to turn over the articles of impeachment to the U.S. Senate this week. The timing remains unclear, but a full Democratic caucus meeting is set for Tuesday morning. The Senate is then likely to adopt a Republican resolution setting the rules for the impeachment trial, including putting off any decision about witnesses until after opening arguments. Celebrations and commiserations are coursing through Hollywood. The Oscar nominations have just been announced in California and Joker has a whopping 11 nominations. Nichelle Turner has the snubs and the surprises and all the details for us. Nichelle, great to have you with us. So 11 Hi, nominations here for Joker. What else have we seen this morning? Well, you know, it, it's kind of been a little bit of a mixed bag. I mean, you talked about some of the celebrations, some of the snubs. There's been a lot of both. Yeah, you're, the, the Joker does lead all nominations this morning with 11, including uh, a nomination for Best Picture and also a Best Director and, of course, for Best Actor for Joaquin Phoenix. And chances are he could take home the Oscar for this role. I mean, he was menacing and, and he really was the Joker. It's, it was one of the... the uh, most unnerving movies that I've seen uh, all year. Also this morning, uh, there's going to be some folks that wake up very happy. Scarlett Johansson is one of those people. She is also a double nominee this morning in the acting category. She was nominated for Best Actress for Marriage Story, also nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Jojo Rabbit. Uh, that hasn't been done since Kate Blanchett did it back in 2007. She was nominated for Elizabeth and she was also nominated for I'm Not There. Um, Cynthia Erivo also waking up a double nominee this morning nominated for Best Actress for Harriet and also Best Song, Stand Up for the same movie uh, that she also wrote and performed uh, that song. Some people waking up uh, not so happy this morning. Jennifer Lopez, one of those people. Conventional wisdom was that she would get a nomination for Best Supporting Actress this morning for her role as Ramona in Hustlers, but she did not. Uh, it looks like Kathy Bates might have knocked her uh, out of that category. Kathy Bates got a nomination uh, for Richard Jewell uh, this morning. A very strong strong category in the supporting actor category. I don't know if you guys got a look at it, but uh, you line up people like Brad Pitt for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Al Pacino in The Irishman, Joe Pesci in The Irishman, Anthony Hopkins for The Two Popes, and Tom Hanks for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And wow, you got yourself a category there. Uh, the money is on Brad Pitt. He's won pretty much everything uh, throughout this award season. Uh, but again, I mentioned this uh, on CNN earlier. Eddie Murphy uh, was also going into the Oscars back in 2007. 
uh, with the same uh, momentum uh, for Dreamgirls, and he did not win. So uh, there's there's uh, been a lot this morning. I think one of the conversation pieces today, though, will be once again this year, no women nominated in the director's category. Greta Gerwig definitely was snubbed this morning for Little Women. There also could have been a case made uh, for Lulu Wang for The Farewell, also for Kazi Lemons for Harriet. None of those ladies uh, saw a nomination. You know, you've led me the, in the direction I was going to ask you about diversity. Mm -hmm. And I know these things can't be forced, but already yeah. I'm looking on social media and it's not actually just about a lack of female directors. It comes back to, sure. to racial diversity here as well. Oscars still white, Oscars so white, the hashtags trending once again. What do we think of this? Well, I mean, there are some arguments that could have been made in a lot of the categories. I mean, when you just think about number one, Best Actress, all of those women that were nominated were phenomenal. But I know there's been a big campaign, a big push for Aquafina in The Farewell. She won the Golden Globe. She was not nominated. Lupita Nyong'o in Us, who was masterful, nominated for a Screen Actors Guild Award, not nominated uh, here this morning as well. Again, I mentioned Eddie Murphy in the Best Actor category. Uh, people thought that maybe he would get a nomination. I mean, I think that we've seen a little more diversity in these nominations than we had in the past. But again, there's work to be done. They've tried to diversify the uh, voting body. They've tried to make it younger, make it more diverse. But I think that it's still going to take some time. Yeah, and there's so much talent, irrespective of uh, oh skin colour. Yeah. And oh yeah. my goodness, wow! <laughs> Nichelle, great yeah. to have you with us. Nichelle Turner, CNN contributor. Thank you for that. All right, we're going to take a break here on the first move. But coming up, we'll be looking at the future of tech, flying vehicles that will drive themselves. And that's just the beginning. Plus, we'll have all the details as Prince Harry meets with the Queen to thrash out the latest royal drama, the Sussex split. All the details coming up. to first move live from the New York Stock Exchange, where uh, U.S. stocks are still set for solid gains this morning. The Nasdaq futures up by around four-tenths of one percent. The outperformer January, in fact, turning into another fantastic month. Yes, FANG members Apple, Alphabet and Facebook all hit record highs last week. They're set to add to those gains today. You can see the gains there. Alphabet begins the week just a stone's throw away from hitting the milestone market cap, get my teeth in, of $1 trillion. It's around, uh, what, $15 billion away from joining Apple and Microsoft in that $1 trillion market cap club. Wow. Now. Onto something that both investors and companies are increasingly aware of, ESG policies. ESG stands for a company's protocol towards environmental, social and governance concerns. Investors and companies can no longer avoid these issues. In fact, Bank of America says 90% of the S&P 500 companies that declared bankruptcy between 2005 and 2015 had poor environmental and social scores in the five years before. ESG has also become a profitable investment strategy too. Jill Carey Hall is the senior US equity strategist at Bank of America and she joins us now. She was one of the authors of the report. Jill, fantastic to have you with us on the show. I've seen this report widely quoted, not only because of the additional returns that you can get over the S&P 500 from just incorporating these kind of protocols and strategies. But the report said that you estimate $20 trillion worth of asset growth in ESG funds over the next two decades. Where is that money going to come from? 
That's right, and thanks for having me. This has been a, a really key topic that that we expect, um, you know, will continue to matter for a lot of key groups, not only uh, investors, but for corporations, for regulators. Um, so really, we think that this is something that has started to take hold here in the U.S., and we've got a long runway. We, we do estimate that inflows into these types of strategies could be as large as $20 trillion over the next two to three decades, as you mentioned. Um, a lot of the, the key groups that care about um, investing based on these characteristics are some of the groups that are poised to see large transfers in wealth or are increasingly gaining in wealth within the U.S. So um, high net worth individuals, women, millennials, these are all groups that, based on our work, we've seen increased interest in investing based on these characteristics. Um, and, and even right now, broadly, we've seen that ESG vehicles have been some of the, the fastest growing um, passive investment vehicles within the market right now. So this is something that, that we continue to see asset flows into the valuation multiples, so where companies are trading um, based on ESG characteristics, the ones that have positive ESG characteristics are now trading at as much as a, a 20% premium to their, their low ESG counterparts. And about a decade ago, that was as much as a 20% discount. So you've seen real changes um, in the valuation, in the performance of these companies over the last, you know, call it five years or so. You know, when we talk about ESG, I think a lot of people's eyes will roll and they'll go, I'm not actually sure what you mean by that. Ultimately, the top category within ESG is that climate, because I do feel like climate change, the impact that companies have on climate and the responsibilities they bear is an increasingly topical conversation. Is that primarily what we're talking about here, particularly when investors are looking at opportunities in the ESG space, climate change? Right. So climate change is the number one ESG issue that that investors care about. So so this is something that you know can certainly fall under the the E or the environmental pillar of ESG. Um, more broadly, ESG is is really you know what we think is just are our companies running themselves responsibly? And you know th this makes sense in that we found that companies that um, rank well on these types of issues have actually seen lower subsequent earnings risk than the companies that rank poorly. So in addition to these companies seeing outperformance in recent years, it's really a, a good measure of, of quality and, and subsequent earnings risk. And, you know, in addition to, to environmental issues like a company's carbon footprint or emissions, um, this will also incorporate social aspects like, you know, how, how a company treats their employees, the types of policies they have, you know, what they're doing for the community. And then governance could be anything from um, management compensation, uh, you know, diversity on corporate boards, companies, you know, any bribery issues, scandals. So really, really all encompassing. And we think these issues are, are increasingly mattering more and more because today, if you look at the assets of, of S&P 500 companies, about 70% of them are, are intangible. So things like brand equity and intellectual property. So you really need a non um, financial, non-financial evaluative framework Metric. to evaluate companies in a different way. Mm hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think codifying this is so important. I mean, we've just been talking about Boeing and what, what happened there. And I think some other 
capability in terms of looking at what's going on in a company, culture, talent, retention of employees, so critical here, trust ultimately. How do investors take advantage of this? And you said we've seen significant inflows in, into passive funds, but specifically, and I think it goes back to the point you were just making, what do investors need to be watching for? Because particularly when you say, if you look at the bankruptcies of companies in recent history, the warning signs were there. If you look at the ESG fundamentals, what do investors need to watch here and how best can they take advantage? Right. I think, you know, avoiding ESG controversies is important. We've seen that, you know, some of the companies that have that have been through some of these ESRG types of controversies in recent years, um, we've seen about almost half a trillion in U.S. market cap destruction around these ESG controversies. So it's cost investors a lot. Um, and, and as you mentioned, we, we did find that about 90 percent of the bankruptcies over that 10 year period from from 2005 to 2015 could have been avoided if investors had, you know, ranked companies based on some of these metrics and avoided some of the poorly ranked companies. Um, so, so we think that, you know, ESG has come a long way from just some of the prior methods of socially responsible investing, where maybe you were just screening out companies based on certain characteristics or, you know, makers of, of tobacco or guns. Here, this is a much more holistic framework where you're really evaluating companies on, on a number of metrics. And, and really, Absolutely. it matters. But we found that what investors can do is this matters by sector as well. So, for example, for an energy company, some of the environmental issues may be more predictive, whereas for a consumer company, we found um, diversity on boards has actually been very important. And this is something our, our retail analysts have written about as well. We're in, a, in an industry that caters to young women. A lot of the board members are actually, on average, older males um, and, and haven't been as aligned with their customers. Makes total sense. Jill, fantastic to have you on, and we will continue this discussion. Jill Kerry Hall of Bank of America. The market open is next. Welcome back to First Move Live from the Stock Exchange. We've just had the opening bells, as expected. A higher open across the board here for U.S. stocks, gaining back a lot of what they lost with the easing on Friday after that U.S. jobs report disappointed slightly. The Nasdaq trading in record territory with that two-tenths of a percent gains. What about for some of the safe havens here, though? They remain under pressure, too. Gold down a further three-tenths of one percent. We've got Treasury yields ticking higher. The 10-year yield at 1.8%. And as for trade-sensitive currencies, the Japanese yen hit a fresh seven-month low against the dollar, with the dollar hitting five-month lows against the Chinese yuan as well. Of course, Wednesday, that signing of the phase one trade deal. All right, let's take a look at the global movers in the session. Tesla shares rallying. Oppenheimer raised its 2020 price target for Tesla to $612 a share. Wow. That's around 20% higher than where we're currently trading. It's the most aggressive price target on Wall Street for Tesla yet. Boeing shares also trading higher. Today is the first day on the job for new CEO Dave Calhoun. His job is to restore Boeing's reputation for safety and quality that was badly damaged, of course, by the ongoing 737 MAX scandal. It's surely one of the most challenging to-do lists in corporate American history. So who is this new leader at the helm of Boeing? Sebastian investigates. Just keep burying yourself in difficult, tough situations. In a guest lecture at Yale School of Management some years ago, this was David Calhoun's advice to students. 
He is now burying himself in one of the toughest situations in corporate America. Boeing backlash. President Trump grounds the 737 MAX fleet. We're going to be issuing an emergency order of prohibition. Ten months since global regulators grounded its fastest-selling plane ever, Boeing is still working to get a software fix approved. Even once that happens, returning the plane to service could take months. In a major turnaround, the company said this month it would recommend simulator as well as computer-based training for all MAX pilots. I believe that uh, June and July for this return to service is even a little optimistic at this point. Fixing the plane is just part of the challenge for Calhoun, an experienced executive who began his career at General Electric and led the company's aviation unit during 9-11. We want a culture where people can bring up concerns. Former CEO Dennis Muhlenberg faced accusations of a broken culture within Boeing, where profits were put ahead of safety and whistleblower complaints were stifled. He rejected those accusations. But new internal documents released just days before Calhoun takes over show employees questioning the safety of 737 MAX simulators and even the plane itself. One message saying this airplane is designed by clowns who are in turn supervised by monkeys. It will be a safe airplane. Uh, it, it really comes down to how quickly people uh, accept what it is that Boeing has to say about how they've fixed this problem. Calhoun must also fix a key relationship with the Federal Aviation Administration. I'm not going to sign off on this airplane until I fly it myself. The day he was named CEO, Calhoun personally called the FAA administrator, a clear example, friends say, of his leadership style. He's direct. You don't have to wonder what he's saying. Uh, he's pragmatic. He, he understands what the issues are and wants to solve them. Calhoun has been on the Boeing board for a decade. He must now prove to employees, airlines and the flying public that this is a new chapter. Claire Sebastian, CNN, New York. Joining us for more, Chris Danelico. He is the Boeing credit analyst at S&P Global. And he cut the Playmakers credit rating in mid-December. Chris, great to have you with us. I do want to talk about what the new CEO can do as far as reassuring people and trust, rebuilding trust in the company. But first, what do you make of the further revelations that we got on Friday, the suggestion that designers were being called clowns, the simple lack of trust, I think, between workers and management? Anything new there for you? Um, well, obviously, it's not good. Uh, I'm not sure it's really new. Uh, you know, there's been a number of um, leaks and other uh, whistleblowers that have come out over the, the past 10 months that have indicated you know, the company was, um, appears to have been under a lot of pressure both by its customers to... Um, you know, produce an airplane that doesn't require a significant amount of new training or um, or spare parts or other things that a new aircraft would require, um, as well as the competitive pressure from Airbus. But um, I, I don't think there was anything particularly new in those um, documents. What do you want to see from Dave Calhoun? What can he do at this stage? Well, I think one thing, um, and, you know, there's a number of um, issues that he has to deal with at this point, um, you know, restoring the reputation, obviously repairing the um, the relationship with the FAA, as well as um, you know other constituents, um, you know the customers. Um, I think more communication from Boeing would definitely be helpful. Um, you know they also have to work very hard, and they'll have to do this sort of in in, um, in concert with the airlines to ensure the flying public and, and the pilots that the aircraft is safe. And then also, um, you know, it has, they have to work. You know, um, culture generally comes from the top of a company, so I think he has to inst you know instill that safety and engineering are the, are the top priorities of the company. I mean, they were going out of their way to mislead regulators in order to 
get these planes up in the air, to reduce costs, to reduce the amount of training that pilots needed. There was a what felt like a blatant disregard for safety here. And to your point, it's not new. But as a consumer, as someone who flies a lot, it, it rattles me the disregard that we saw within the company here. What can they do in terms of financials here? Do you think we end up seeing workers being cut? Because the cash burn at the company is quite material here and that reassurance of trust to tie those two things together is simply going to take time. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I mean, I think, you know, certainly in the near term, I mean, obviously restoring the reputation is very important. But the focus of the company in the near term really is to get the airplane certified and to start delivering those aircraft that they've produced over the last 10 months, um, get the cash in and then pay down their debt. Um, you know, part of the uh, the downgrade um, reasons for the downgrade back before the holidays was, you know, we are becoming a bit concerned about the company's longer term competitive position and profitability due to this. Uh, you know, although there haven't been any big order cancellations, you know, for the last nine months, Airbus has been getting more NEO orders and they've already have a higher market share than Boeing in the narrow body market. And then the longer the delays and the longer it takes for them to get the plane back in production and at a higher rate uh, affects the profitability of the program going forward. So uh, although it'll take a while to determine this, it's possible that, you know, their cash generation may not be as strong as it was prior to this. You see, I'm confused by that. The whole reason why I think there was a, a sense of calm initially about the bigger business here for Boeing was that there simply isn't a competitive option here. Airbus backlog is huge on this. They can't provide the planes that, that, that airliners want, even if they would choose to go to, to Airbus here. What's the threat that people just decide, you know what, we'll stick with the planes that we have and we'll just wait several years for Airbus to come up with the goods, even if we have to wait? No, in the near term, you're absolutely right. There's, there's no way that Airbus can meet any um, additional demand um, from anyone canceling orders from Boeing. Um, but over time, you know, th there's also there's the possibility that the, the whole MAX incident will um, kind of prompt Boeing to go to a new aircraft maybe sooner than they wanted to, which, you know, requires a significant amount of investment and, you know, is often not as profitable in, in the first place. Um, you know, but a lot of this will be driven by technology, both on the engines and, uh, and other aspects to reduce costs for airlines. So, um, you know, I think uh, another factor that's to keep in mind is, um, you know, the company is giving significant um, uh, cons uh, consideration to the airlines that have been affected, um, you know, both cash as well as discounts on future aircraft. And it's likely that any new orders would ha would also have to be at a discount, at least, uh, you know, initially in order to entice airlines to buy the airplane. Mm. We'll watch this space. Chris Nicolo, Boeing Credit Analyst at S&P Global. So thank you for joining us on the show. Great, thank you. Digital One, it's one of the major breakthroughs that could bring big investment opportunities this year. One of my favorite subjects, too. We'll take a look at what else is on the list. Stay with us. The show, electric cars, 3D printing and automation. These are to be some of the key investment opportunities in 2020. That's according to ARK Invest and their analyst, Tasha Keeney, joins us now. Great to have you with us. Thanks for to having me To be fair, on. electric vehicles, automation, something that you guys have been saying for a long while now is going to be a huge growth opportunity. I wanted to start by talking about Tesla because we mentioned that earlier. 
are uh, people at ARC doing the happy dance that Elon Musk was doing in China last week as a result of the share price? Uh, well, today Oppenheimer just put out a recent note. Yeah. Uh, they upped their price target a significant amount, 385 to 612. Yeah. And um, the reason that Colin Rush cited is because Tesla is three years ahead on its powertrain, which we this has been part of our thesis for a very long time. They're three years ahead on batteries, data collection, and on hardware on the autonomous driving side. I mean, I was looking at the uh, market more broadly, and I think the average analyst recommendation for price was still around 315 dollars so is this to your point the beginning of perhaps other and auto analysts specifically here perhaps because you always said there's a technology aspect to this story that traditional auto analysts are missing is this the beginning do you think where people go okay we're starting to see I think so. And and what's really interesting is even if you look at the uh, the price target changes, not a lot of analysts have actually changed their rating on the stock. No. And what we think is going to happen is those analysts are going to get their performance reviews soon. And if you're a traditional auto analyst and you've sort of been misunderstanding the story, maybe they'll take the stock and they'll give it to a tech analyst. So we think this is really the turning point where people are starting to realize that Tesla really has an advantage. Other auto companies just aren't catching up. Um, and, and we're excited for it. Talk to me about China as well, because we were talking about the, what Tesla's achieved in China. I mean, they ground broke, produced a factory, and are now delivering cars all in the space of a year. I mean, one of the interesting things to me is that would not be possible in any other nation in the world. So there's a China story here, but there's also the opportunity that China represents here for Tesla. Exactly. And what's very interesting is, you know, Tesla's the first automaker. This is a wholly owned factory. Yes. Um, so this is l all less than a year that this happened. Um, and it shows that Tesla can scale in a capital efficient manner, which we think is really important for sort of that long term picture. Um, people have been concerned about their gross margin uh, before this last earnings call. We think those fears are really going to be quelled by this announcement. And, and we're excited for China because we think it's not only the most important auto market, it's the most important market for autonomous driving. So not just sales, but autonomous driving. What's holding this technology back, whether it's electric vehicles? Because it's still such a tiny fraction of the market. And even if I look at the China data that we saw for 2019 for car sales, admittedly there were subsidies that were cut as well, but those numbers were declining too. What's going to make the difference here to see acceleration in the demand for electric vehicles? Well, from our work, um, my partner analyst, Sam Kors, yeah. has done a lot of work on electric vehicles. And basically, if you use rights law, which is a law that says for every cumulative doubling in production, you get a corresponding uh, decline in price. So right now, an electric vehicle on a like-for-like -like basis is still more expensive than a gas-powered car. That's going to change in the next couple of years. And we really think that those underlying economics and that sticker price change without subsidies, by the way, yes. is what's going to make this demand an inflection point. And you have a chart that shows rights law, actually, in your 2020 presentation, which I recommend everybody reads because it's exciting, yes. irrespective. Big idea. But it's yeah. solid for the last 100 years. This is not exactly. something that we're just pulling out and saying, hey, you know, we think this will apply from now on. It has applied over the last 100 years, which is why you're referring to it. Exactly. And by the way, we use this to model um, many innovative technologies. You can look at uh, DNA sequencing, for example. Um, rights law really holds up for these types of innovations. So talk to me now about flying cars. It was the big story at CES. What do we think of this, really? But no, not only flying cars, autonomous flying cars. 
Right, right. Well, it, you know, it might sound like a silly idea, but actually, um, based on the work that, my, again, Sam Course has done on batteries and what I've looked at for autonomous technology, yeah. we're at this turning point where um, flying cars are possible because of improvements in batteries. You get that extra range that you need to make flight possible. And because of autonomous technology, uh, the price is coming down. Um, so we're going to see uh, drones that deliver parcels, but also people. Um, and for ambulances, this could actually make a huge difference um, because in that case, there are, you know, there are over 350,000 cardiac arrests in the U.S. Um, and, and those minutes in terms of the ambulance getting to the person and actually saving them can make a real difference. In so you're terms saying of actually government lives. investment in this as well is also going to be critical to potentially save lives. Exactly. Yes. We think these could be the ambulances of the future, um, not just the taxis of the future. 3D printing. I feel like we were really excited about 3D printing maybe two, three years ago, and it mm -hmm. is being used, and it's being used more and more. But again, you point out we've kind of gone off the ball a bit in terms of the enthusiasm and, and the way that it's being talked about. What are your expectations here? Yeah, so you're absolutely right that investors have kind of been overlooking this space. We've been investors in 3D printing for a long time. Stratus, this is our top holding there. Um, and what we think is that the 3D printing industry today is roughly $10 billion. We think that could go to $97 billion over the next five years. And what's driving that is um, end-use parts. So right now, 3D printing is used a lot of the time for prototyping. Um, but it could actually be used, um, it's already being used in aircraft, in healthcare, anything that's customized, anything that's really complex and low volume, that's what 3D printing is good at. Uh, you have some fascinating numbers actually in here mm -hmm. as well that show the reduction in the number of pieces required when you can 3D print something, just the sheer manufacturing process collapses, it makes it far, far more efficient. Exactly. We're seeing aerospace parts that used to be hundreds of parts going to just 12. Um, we're seeing a lot of these cases, and actually when you do that, when you use 3D printing and you reduce the part count, you not only make a part that's more structurally sound, but you can often make it way less. So for an aerospace company, that can save you fuel. And um, when you're a company like Boeing or Airbus, those, that, the difference that that'll make on your operating margin is huge. Are they using it already? Yes or no, they yes, are. Yes, they are, but, but that's, that's precisely the point, that 3D printing today is only 1% um, or less of the parts in a plane. We think that could grow significantly over the next five years. I always feel like time with you slips by so fast. We will get you back. Plenty more to discuss as always, but I recommend again, your 2020 report is phenomenal, super interesting. Tasha, great to have you with us. Thanks for having Tasha me. Tasha Keeney there of ARC Invest. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. We're coming up. It's a royal showdown as Prince Harry meets with the Queen and other top royals. But what's next for he and Meghan? Well, we'll have the details. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. Top members of Britain's royal family are meeting today to discuss the future of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, also known, of course, as Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan. The couple announced last week that they plan to step back from their roles as senior members of the royal family. Max Foster is at the Sandringham Estate, where the summit is taking place. Max, great to have you with us. Lots of speculation over the weekend about the state of relations, too, between the two princes. But they put out a statement today saying, hang on a second, everybody, back off. We're still together in this. Actually, the... Yeah, well, that's about a specific story that came out today, which was in The Times, a source close to the couple. It was a very well-regarded reporter, which is why everyone took so much notice of it. Uh, but it effectively said that this source suggesting that the Sussexes are being pushed out of the family effectively uh, because of the bullying of Prince William. Uh, Prince William obviously took great offence to this because one of his great campaigns is mental health, as it is for Harry, and both their offices came out with a statement saying, for brothers who care so deeply about the issues surrounding mental health, 
The use of inflammatory language in this way is offensive and potentially harmful. Uh, there have been other briefings, however, which haven't been denied, uh, suggesting uh, that uh, the relations have broken down somewhat, but they're not as crisis-ridden as many people suggest. But it is pretty bad when they're discussing it in open. There have been these rifts behind palace walls sometime, as there are in all families, but it really is breaking out now. And I think it's all coming to a head, really, around the table today when William and Harry will face each other uh, with the Queen at the head of that table. What do we think a split here of sorts will look like, Max? Because there has been a lot of speculation about how to keep the Duke and Duchess happy, what role they play as part of the royal family going forward, whether some level of independence, be it financial or beyond, is right in the modern monarchy. What do we expect as a result of the talks today? Well, there's never been a situation where being half in, half out has really worked. Uh, so. Being in is one thing, being out is one thing. That's pretty clear. Uh, what the Duke and Duchess of Sussex want is somewhere in between, and there's a range of scenarios that could play out. And palace advisers and government advisers have tried to draw up several different roles, effectively, uh, for the Sussexes, which they will be picking over today and discussing and trying to find some sort of uh, common ground on around the table today. Uh, the issue, of course, is that the Sussexes came out with that website last week being very clear about exactly what it is they wanted. They're going to have to climb down to some extent if they're going to compromise uh, with the wider family who frankly aren't happy with what's currently up on that website. Uh, the Duchess dialing in from Canada as well. So it's going to be quite an awkward meeting, I imagine. But I think everyone around the table actually does want to make this work somehow. It's not in anyone's interest for all these rumours of rifts and you know, stories bubbling up in the paper. Uh, if they continue, it's just bad for everyone involved. And what about the threat that there would be some kind of interview suggesting racism and sexism at the palace if they don't get what they want here, Max? What do we make of that? It's difficult to say uh, what I make of it, but you don't have this sort of you know, open negotiation um, normally on royal stories. We don't know whether or not that's true. It comes from quite a strong source. Could it just be a threat? But yes, if it does happen, a no-holds-barred Diana-type interview with the Duchess of Sussex, it would be the worst-case scenario, really, for the royal family, because they don't want all of that information out in the open. It could be very, very sensitive indeed. Yeah, it is very sensitive, and we wait and see what comes of that meeting. Max, great to have you with us from Sandringham there. All right, that just about wraps up the show. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing for U.S. markets this morning. We are in the green. I make that, yep, a fresh record for the Nasdaq, approaching that 2,900 level once again for the Dow. Can we hold on to these gains? We shall see. The Express is back in a couple of hours' time. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 